Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, and also verses 34 and 35. If you don't have a Bible, you can find it on page 818 in the Red Bibles under your chair. Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And continuing at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike Stanzik. On behalf of the elders, welcome to Trinity Community Church. Thank you for braving the, the snow to be here this morning to worship together. Glad you're here. I would just add my voice to, to Jerry and Debbie's as well and, and just strongly urge you to consider coming to the Love Inc. orientation. Many of you know that prior to working here, I was on staff at Love Inc., and, and there really is a number of, of very, very special things happening through that ministry. So as we dive in today, I, I, I wanted to briefly say something about sort of our preaching ministry here at Trinity. I mentioned this last week as well, that we, we sort of do a few different things as we preach through the scriptures. Sometimes we'll preach through sort of the story of the Bible, sometimes sort of how the Bible speaks to specific topics. But one of the reasons why we also preach through entire books is because it forces you to come across passages like this one. Not user-friendly, right? These are sort of tough passages to, to tease apart, not just because they, they have tough things to say, but also because sometimes it's just confusing. And so this is actually an opportunity for us to dive into to some of the more confusing passages of Scripture and get a better understanding and by the, the work of the Spirit in us to, to be changed. And so it's for that that I'm going to pray at this time if you'd join me. Lord, I, I do ask that by your Spirit you would change us through your Word, that we would be the sorts of people that, um, that wrestle with the things that Jesus has to say, um, that we would go to Jesus for meaning, that we would go to Jesus for understanding. I pray, Lord, that, that you would give us a deep sense of our need, because I think that's where, where it seems to begin. So I 
I pray that, that you would give that to us as we trek out into this passage this morning. Amen. So those of you who are familiar with the sayings of Jesus know that Jesus was very much of a storyteller. He taught often through stories called parables. And so for the next about four weeks, we are going to be just in the parables of Jesus. We've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. At this point, we hit chapter 13, which is almost all parables. But we're going to jump ahead just a little bit, because before we dive into the stories of the kingdom, we have to understand why it is that Jesus told the stories of the kingdom. Before we understand the parables, we have to understand why Jesus told them in the first place. These are captivating, image-laden stories. They stick with you. They kind of haunt you. I remember being taught some of these parables through this very congregation growing up. I, I remember being taught many of these parables with my brother and my parents all in, in their bed as they read the scriptures to us. I remember how much they stuck with me. Jesus is very purposeful with these. And so we're going to try to explore what that purpose is. What we're going to find is that what you think about Jesus will determine what you think about Jesus' parables. What you think about Jesus will determine what you think about the parables. So today we're going to discover a few things that the parables do. Most of our time will be on the first point. Then the, 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 the two points after that will be a little bit more abbreviated. But the first one's where we get a lot of the confusing language, so we're going to camp out there for a while. So what we first find is that the parables of Jesus reveal what you think about Jesus. Let's reread verses 10 through 13. <clears throat> then the disciples came and they said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So as a little bit of context, here in the story, again, we've, we've skipped ahead just a little bit. Jesus has just told one of the most famous parables, the, the parable of the sower, and now the disciples have kind of got him by himself. And they, they bring up, like, why, why do you communicate to them that way? Not, why not with just clear, straightforward statements? Why do you veil meaning behind these parables? And so in, in typical Jesus form, he doesn't answer the question straight on, right? He, he sort of answers this question that they should have been asking. Or, or rather, in this case, he points out the significance of the fact that the disciples asked him a question at all. He points out the significance of the fact that the disciples asked him a question at all. The disciples' question reveals something about their attitude toward Jesus. It reveals what they think about him. So it was recently pointed out to me that in the brief months I've been preaching here at Trinity. I've ruined the endings of like a dozen movies. Um, so Ashley thinks, my wife Ashley thinks my sermons should be accompanied by like a spoiler alert. So I am so sorry about that. And I'm sorry that I'm going to do it again right now. So one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite movies is, is called Paris, Texas. It's directed by Wim Wenders, this German director that immigrated to the, the United States and just excellent. Has this awesome soundtrack by Ry Cooder, if you've ever listened to Ry Cooder. And it follows the story of this Texas drifter 
named Travis, Texas drifter named Travis, and he's this character whose life has just utterly fallen apart. Prior to, the, to any of the events of the film, you know, he, he fell into alcoholism and mental illness, and he has this, you know, cute little boy named Hunter, and the whole family fell apart, and his wife left him. So all this happens before the events of the film. You just are introduced to him as this, like, silent, kind of in-his-head drifter who suddenly reappears into the lives of his family. His son Hunter has been uh, living with Travis's brother. He's been raised by Travis's brother. So Travis shows up, tries to rekindle this relationship with Hunter. But as the movie goes along, it becomes clear that Travis is going to have to do something much, much more difficult. He's going to have to try to reunite Hunter with his mom, Jane. So he starts trying to figure out where Jane is. And a lot of the movie is just Travis trying to figure out where she is. And he finds that her life has spiraled in these terrible ways. And in any case, eventually he finds a way to contact her. And he gets her on the phone. Now, he doesn't have any kind of idea. It's been years, right? He doesn't know where Jane is at emotionally. He doesn't know what she thinks of him or how interested she would even be in, in rekindling something with Hunter. He doesn't know if she hates him. He doesn't know if she would be open to to starting things over again. And so he has to do something to draw her out. He has to do something that's going to sort of reveal where she is emotionally and mentally and sort of bring out whatever's inside of her. And so what does he do? He doesn't reveal that it's him on the phone. He just begins to tell a story. Just tells a story as though it's a story completely unrelated to the two of them, but it's really their story. And so he starts to talk about this couple and and the way they met and what a beautiful thing it was when they met. And he begins to talk about their their romance together and their marriage, and he, he talks about their son, Hunter. And then he begins to tell about this couple, right, and all the ways in which the husband failed the wife. He talks about all the ways in which the wife failed the husband, He talks about how everything just sort of fell apart. He tells a story. And as he's telling the story, you're you're watching Jane, and she doesn't say anything while he's talking. She just listens and slowly begins to cry, just quietly crying to herself as she listens on the other end of the phone. And then the the final scene, you know, it cuts, and, and suddenly you see her, seeing Hunter for the first time in years and this relationship beginning and the look on her face like she can't even believe that she's here. And I defy anybody in this room to watch that final scene with dry eyes. I'm convinced it cannot be done. I have tried. Anyway, as I was preparing this sermon, I thought of the ending of that movie because Travis's story, the story he tells to Jane does so much more than just pass along information, right? He's not telling a story to entertain. It's not a teaching illustration. A teaching illustration, it does something. What does it do? It forces a response. Like there was no way that Jane could hear that story and remain neutral. Her, her inner life was going to come out. So even if she had said nothing and just walked away from the conversation, that in and of itself would have revealed something about her heart. That in and of itself would have revealed something about her heart. But by the act of telling this story, Travis revealed her. It drew her out. Jesus is saying that the the parables do that very same thing. 
There are lots of people in the crowd who hear Jesus tell his parables, but only the disciples press him for meaning. So here at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus has just told the parable of the sower. And it's a confusing parable if you have no context going in, right? So the, 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 the crowd just hears Jesus tell this story, and yet what happens next? The disciples take Jesus aside, and they ask him, please explain this to us. They go to him for meaning. The parable revealed something about the disciples, and it reveals that they're disciples. It reveals that they are following Jesus. Let's unpack that a little bit more. So Jesus says, it's been given to you, so it's been given to the disciples, to know the secrets of the kingdom. In other words, these stories are weird. They're hard to understand. The disciples are going to learn what they mean. It's been given to them to know what it actually is that the parables communicate. And the main reason why it's given to them is because they ask. They ask. They didn't react by saying, like, okay, well, here's Jesus being nuts again, right? Nor did they just go off and try to, like, decide the meaning on their own. They go to Jesus for meaning. The reason why it's been given to the disciples to know the secrets of the kingdom is because they are disciples. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at where he says that, those who have, that to those who have, more will be given, and that to those who don't have, even what they have will be taken away. He's saying that the disciples have something. So what is that? It's trust. They, they recognize Jesus to be exactly who he says he is. They recognize him to be the one who can connect them to meaning itself. And because of that, they're going to get the benefits of what Jesus comes to give. It reminds me of this social experiment that I saw on YouTube where this guy goes out into the streets of New York and he has an envelope with $100 in it. And he just goes up to crowds of people. I wouldn't take this either. But he goes up to crowds of people and just says, like, would you like money? And hands them an envelope and nobody takes this thing, right? Like, so as he's going around, he's, he's stopping people and saying, would you like this, this envelope full of money? And in order for them to actually get that money, those crowds of people would have to trust this complete stranger on the street, right? So they have to have something before they can get something in this situation. They have to have trust in this stranger before they can get the $100. For those who are willing to truly seek out the meaning that Jesus comes to offer. The parables are going to draw them in. If they already have a trust in Jesus, they're going to discover treasures through the parables. They're going to discover treasure in Jesus' words. But for many, many others, it will actually drive them away. Jesus says that those who have not, even what they have will be taken away. So what's Jesus saying? He's definitely not saying that he's, like, looking for, pe- like, the have-nots of society, right? He's not saying, I'm going to look for people who are financially destitute and take away whatever they have still, right? Like, clearly Jesus is not saying that. No, he's saying that for many people out there, maybe even including some of us, they'll lack what the disciples have. They'll have no hunger to find the truth in Jesus, Many folks will look at Jesus and there will be nothing there to pique their curiosity and so the parables are going to repel them. In Jesus' day, many, many 
people were disgusted by the parables because they described the kingdom of heaven coming without overthrow. They described the kingdom of heaven coming without triumphalism, without this like unstoppable march of victory. Instead, they, they described the kingdom of heaven coming discreetly, sometimes with suffering, through self-giving love. And that was repulsive to a whole lot of people. People rejected the parables because they were rejecting the one who told them. Who's this backwater Nazarene, a carpenter's son? I actually think that that the words of Christ are met with something similar now. I think for many people, the words of Jesus are a little quaint. They're part of an old tradition that served us well for a little while, but we've moved beyond that now, right? Like, they're, they're, they're simplistic words, pious without being meaningful. Jesus is a king for people too simple or uncourageous to leave behind the superstitions that helped us sleep at night. They're deep to people who are shallow. I think others will look at these stories and they'll look at Jesus and they'll actually think they're seeing something deeply sinister. That behind the words of Jesus, these words that that encourage people to advance the kingdom through self-giving love, they're going to see that as something that is backing up hierarchy. They will hear the words of Jesus, and they'll they'll see this upside-down kingdom as a way to calm the disenfranchised so they don't overthrow the system. They'll see Jesus as actually running against justice itself. Others won't give Jesus or his stories more than a passing thought. And I'm actually worried that that's where many of us will be in these coming weeks. I think for those of us who have been, been Christians for a long time, maybe even second, third, fourth generation Christians, we have heard these stories many, many times before, right? That we know them backwards and forwards. And so we, we sometimes arrive at this place where we think they have nothing more to offer us anymore. We hear the parables, and we check out. And I think if we have that attitude going in, I think Jesus is telling us to watch out. Because it's not long before we'll feel that way about all the sayings of Jesus, and eventually about Jesus himself. And I'm not saying that we'll, like, deconvert or something. We'll we'll probably continue to to identify as Christians or, or whatever. We'll just think that we have... Christianity down. We'll we'll stop truly seeking meaning in Jesus. We'll stop abiding in him and become Christian in name only. It will reveal what we think about Jesus. Nothing much to offer. The parables of Jesus reveal what you think about Jesus. Secondly, the parables of Jesus evaluate what you think about Jesus. Let's start again, verse 13. We'll go to verse 15. This is why I speak to them in parables, the crowd. This is why I speak to the crowd in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes 
they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So as we said, part of the reason Jesus is telling parables is because it draws out a response. It reveals what people think about him. So even if the crowds were to full-on ignore Jesus, that would obviously reveal what they think about Jesus, about the king. But why is that important for Jesus? Why is it important to, like, manufacture the situation where folks are, like, picking sides on him right in front of his eyes? Why is that important? People are going to hear the parables, and then whatever their estimation of Jesus is, that attitude is going to be put on public display. And I think that's why it's important to Jesus. So Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah. If you guys aren't familiar with Isaiah, it's part of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And it's a a book written around the ideas and the writings of this prophet Isaiah who lived right around the exile of Israel. And, And the book opens with God sort of describing all the ways in which his people have betrayed him or rebelled against him, all the ways that they have failed, and all the ways that he's been faithful to them throughout all these years. And it sort of culminates in God calling up a prophet to announce something to them. He's going to announce to God's people that his patience has come to an end. So he's going to take action on the terms of the agreement, right? He is going to send them into exile. But before he sends them into exile, he's going to take Isaiah, he's going to send Isaiah out into Israel, and Isaiah is going to announce judgment. He's going to call for repentance. He's going to plead with the people of Israel to repent, to change, to avoid this judgment. And God actually tells Isaiah, like, how would you like this mission? God actually tells Isaiah, it's all not going to work. In fact, it's going to have the opposite effect, right? God is actually sending Isaiah out in order to harden people in their hatred of the Lord. It's this like very grim text, right? Isaiah is going to go out and be rejected almost across the board. Isaiah is going to reveal the hearts of Israel. And part of the reason he's going to do it is so that when God brings justice, no one can call it injustice. God's going to reveal the hearts of his people so that he can publicly evaluate them. And it's that verse that Jesus quotes here. Jesus is announcing the coming of the kingdom, and whatever people do with that good news is going to be evaluated by God. Here at Trinity, announcing the good news is one of our core values. Mission is one of our core values. And so we've really, this year, been trying to think through and learn more about what it means to announce the gospel in our cultural moment. We're living in this really kind of unique, disorienting cultural moment. Many people call it sort of the the post-Christian era or the era of secularism. And so we're kind of trying to think through what does it mean to, to, to be obedient to Jesus in this context. And one thing I can tell you is going to be pretty common It's going to be pretty common more than ever that our message gets rejected. Now, sometimes that's going to be because we didn't make it clear, right? Sometimes it's going to be on us. Sometimes we're we're going to, yeah, just not, it'll be on us. We'll, We'll fail to really communicate the message clearly. But at other times, we'll get rejected not because our message is unclear, but because the message was clear as day. You see what I mean? We will get rejected because our message was very clear. 
Because the, the message of the kingdom, will, the good news of the kingdom will not be good. It will challenge our individualism. It will challenge our sense of, like, I've got it all together, self-sufficiency. It challenges our comfort. It challenges our sense of sort of moral autonomy. What I mean by that is that, you know, like, I kind of can arrive at moral decisions on my own. I have everything needed to make good moral decisions on my own. It's going to challenge that assumption really, really hard. It will tell us that we are, at bottom, something we don't want to be. And that in order to stop being that thing, we have to do something many of us don't want to do, and that's recognize our need. Later on in that same YouTube video where the guy's trying to hand out money, or he spends the whole video kind of trying to to offer the money to these crowds as they're passing by. And at the end of the video, the point was, was, was very, very powerful, even though you can almost smell the self-righteousness off the YouTuber as he's doing this. Let's lay that aside for a second. But at the end of the video, he, he comes up to a homeless man and, and says, do you want this envelope? It's full of money. And there's no hesitation in that guy. He just takes the envelope. It's this very powerful moment. When you realize that, that all these crowds of people who turned down that money, the reason they turned it down, at least partially, was because they didn't really have a desperate need for it. Because if their need had been that desperate, they would have taken a chance on that envelope. It was their sense of self-sufficiency that robbed them. But for the man on the street, he, he, you know, what did he have to prove? He's at this place of desperation. Sure, I'll take the envelope. And if it's empty, that's a really cruel trick. But if there's money inside, then there's money inside. What should Christians have that others might not? What sets us apart? It's not moral superiority. We don't become Christians because we're like on a higher moral ground than everybody else. And so we're just so good that we were able to become Christians. It's not intellectual superiority. We didn't become Christians because we were just way smarter than everybody else around us and, and we found Jesus. Christianity is a highly reasonable faith. I think it's the most reasonable. Obviously, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't, but that's not the reason why we're Christians. We come to Jesus because we need Jesus. And it is in getting in touch with that need where we receive the greatest gift. And it's those sorts of folk that we go out searching for. We live in a very comfortable society. It is really easy, especially in, in, in the area of Lake County that we live in. It's really easy to think you have it all together and have no needs. Like what Jerry brought up, many of us are not materially poor. We're deeply spiritually poor. But we don't think we are because we're materially rich. But there are still many out there who are in touch with their need. I meet them constantly at Hansa. I know many of you guys do too. And many of them will not reject the message. Some of them will hear. The parables of Jesus evaluate what you think about Jesus. And lastly, the parables of Jesus change those who follow Jesus. Verses 16 to 17. 
But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they didn't hear it. So what's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about that prior to the disciples, there were many, many people of God who were faithful, right? They were faithful, they followed, and they still did not see this day. They didn't see the way the kingdom would come. They, didn't, like, they weren't able to identify who actually the, like, the Messiah would turn out to be. But the disciples are very, very blessed to find out those secrets. And I'm not going to spend much time talking about what those secrets are because that's what we have the next four weeks for, right? We're going to be working our way through the parables, so we're going to talk through the the way that the kingdom comes. That's largely the topic of the parables as we go forward. So what I actually want us to do right now is to skip ahead to verses 34 and 35, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about what, what goes on there. So, Matthew writes, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So Matthew here, he says that Jesus speaking in parables fulfills this verse. And this verse he mentions is from Psalm 78. So it's from Psalm 78. It's part of the the poetry collection that we have in the middle of our Bibles. Many of these poems were used in Hebrew worship, and and they still ought to play a very integral part to our devotional life and and what it means to be a Christian. In Psalm 78, the poet, whose name is Asaph, he he writes that he's going to open his mouth in parables, that he's going to reveal things hidden since the foundation of the world. And then what does he go on to do in that poem? I'll sort of summarize it. He says that he's going to announce this story to Israel so that his generation will not make the mistakes of past generations. And the whole rest of the poem, it's a long poem, he just retells the story of Israel. He, t- he talks about how God saved them from under oppression. He-, he talks about how God was faithful to make them into a people, how God never gave up on them. And, and the idea is that that by reading or listening to this poem, the idea is that, that people's frame of mind is going to be totally reconfigured, that they're going to start to see all these repeated betrayals in the past, but they're also going to see the, the ongoing faithfulness of God to them. And that out of that, something in them is going to change, and they're going to turn to the God who saved them. So Matthew wants us to think of Jesus' parables in that light. He wants us to think about all the teachings of Jesus in that light, that that Jesus is announcing to this people, please don't make the mistake of the past. See the story of Yahweh through all these years and follow change. If you guys remember from our Recalibrate series, one of our guiding principles for how we, we think mission ought to be done here in this time and place is, is, is through the act of storytelling. We believe that we're sent to be sort of storytellers. And why is that important? Well, I, I think that we all ultimately live by a story. We all are living according to some sort of story. And there's lots of different stories that, could be living, that we could be living by. So here's a couple common ones that I think you'll find. So a common story that many people live by is one in which progress is unstoppable. Progress is always unstoppable, and it's almost always good. You know, so this is sort of like taking the phrase history arcs toward justice that Martin Luther King said and, and like, twisting it into something that 
Martin Luther King never would have endorsed, right? So, like, history arcs toward goodness inevitably. So folks don't question a lot of the morality that's fed to them in culture. They don't question a lot of the technology that's available to them in culture. In this story, human invention is getting increasingly better. Morality is getting more and more righteous. And so if we just keep advancing, if we just keep on moving toward sort of autonomy and and personal choice, then soon we'll have utopia. And in this case, so our hope is in progress. Our hope, our faith is in progress. Others believe a story that says that freedom and justice and goodness increase the more people have the courage to lay aside superstitious religious belief, right? So this is one that believes that any sort of belief in the transcendent is actually holding us back. We have, we have to have the courage to kind of face the meaninglessness of society. But if we do, we'll stop killing each other in religious wars and we'll be able to assert our own meaning. And that meaning will inevitably be better, it'll be awesome, and if we can just courageously live up to that and assert meaning onto the universe, then we'll have a just society and we'll find utopia. So in in this case, our hope, our faith is in ourselves, that we actually have the power to make these sort of moral decisions. I think others sort of baptize the American dream, and then a story comes out of that. In this version, the kingdom of God advances the more Christians or people who agree with Christians take political office. And if we can just stack the government with people who agree with us morally, then we'll have utopia. In this case, our hope is not in Jesus, it's in politics. As though stacking a political system can get us the kingdom of God. Whatever story you think you're living in, it will determine what decisions you make. It will determine what you prioritize. It will determine how you live. And the role that I think we play as believers is to walk into our circles of relationship around us with an opposing story, with a different story. Like all of us are called to be sort of little Asaphs, announcing the salvation that God is bringing through the forgiveness offered in Jesus and inviting people into this very upside down, very countercultural kingdom. And many will reject this story. Some will reject it and then adopt it later on. Others will see it for the good news that it is. But the way that we begin to to become that kind of a storyteller is to listen to the stories. The way that we become that kind of storyteller is to make God's story our story. To see that the stories of our very lives are folded into the story that God is telling through all of human history. To start to redefine ourselves according to his terms. It's like putting on a lens and seeing everything differently. It's learning to see the world in a different way. We need the story of the kingdom. Which means that we need the humility Encouraged to come to Jesus for meaning. The, like the willingness to lay down our own little personal narratives and to discover meaning in his. And a good way to get started on that is with the parables. That's what we'll dive into next week. You'll pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges that it consistently mounts against us, we pray, Lord, that you would give us humility and courage in the coming weeks, that we would let 
the stories of the kingdom challenge our way of seeing the world. And that the result would be life. I pray, God, that, that whatever sort of pet idols we might be holding on to, whatever, whatever things that we have been prioritizing or putting our hope in, other than you, that you would show us how hollow those are. And that instead, Lord, you, you would show us the nature of the upside-down kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've given us in the cross. And we lean on that grace as we go forward. Amen. Mm-hmm.